0: Here at CFO Bookshelf, we typically interview thought leaders who are also authors. As someone who practices FP&A daily with his clients, I find most books are dull and boring on the topic. So I'm thinking, let's find some global FP&A accelerators and multipliers and talk to them about their work. So our first FP&A director is based in Brazil, and she heads her global FP&A team at ThoughtWorks. Her name is Danielle Martins, and I'm Mark Gandhi. and this fascinating conversation is coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. The first question I had for Danielle Martins was, how did she get started? And I think you're going to like her answer.
1: I think that I, my story started back in college. Uh, or graduation in reality so back then when I was doing accounting I was never really that accountant that you would expect and then seeing things around and I was just thinking god it must be something else that I want to do within this field but not necessarily doing the entries on debits and credits so I stumbled back then in and Early two thousands uh, with the controlling uh, controllership uh, concept in Brazil. So I am formed and uh, raised in Brazil. So I'm, all my background is here. So controllership back then was something new. And then once I start tapping into that, I cre- created this understanding of this need of management information. And then uh, that just popped in my mind, crossed my 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 eyes and I really fell in love with it. And I started following um, the leads towards that direction. So after finishing uh, my graduation in accounting, I moved into London and then there uh, I, I I was invited to do the Chartered Institute of Management Accounting. And that was then I fell in love definitely. And then I felt like this is what I want to be doing. Analytics, understanding business, providing insights and from there on, I just kept on moving towards that direction on my own, and then kind of uh, the rest, of the universe just presented to me, I guess.
0: And so currently, you you are you're based in Brazil, is that correct? Now,
1: that is correct. Yes, I lived for five years in London, and then I came back ten years ago, eleven years ago, in reality, and then now I'm based here.
0: How, how large is your FPA team where you are?
1: So we have a international team. It's a global team. So it is spread across the world. Uh, it's about eight people. And we have uh, from people in Australia, London, New York, Chicago, Denver, and also in Brazil, another few folks in different uh, locations in Brazil.
0: If I can pivot away from FP&A just for like a nanosecond, then we'll come back. In your LinkedIn profile, you have a position commercial analyst, for Disney, that had to be a cool job, was it?
1: It was indeed. Um, it was one of the aha moments of my life when I was working in London, and I got that call to to be invited for an interview in Disney. I was just thrilled. And then I joined the team uh, back in 2007, I think it was. And I spent a year and a half uh, with them. It was so much fun being in that environment, uh, being uh, in the the middle of the action of how Disney stores work. So it is very um, interesting how they treat people within the company. And that was my first, actually, experience of a company that really took care of their employees the way they did. So that was also something that really added to my uh, whole experience, not only the finance side, but also experiencing that uh, care with, with people and bringing the fun into the job. That's, I think, that's the, the best thing I learned in
0: there. One of the questions, you've actually have already answered it, but I still want to repeat it. There are two types of FP&A professionals. There are the professionals who say, I want to be an FP&A pro, or there are the people who weren't even thinking about it, and they wound up in an FP&A accidental. So it sounds like you kind of accidentally found your way, and then you loved it. And I I know you don't know the answer to this, but would you say it's about 50-50 for people who say... I want to be an FPNA pro or it's accidental? Would you say it's about
1: 50-50? I think it's about 50-50. Um, I think that the FPNA concept, at least in Brazil, is not well known yet. Uh, so people don't get to hear that necessarily at uni. Uh, so then they come uh, across it later in their lives especially in the professional world when they the companies may provide that naming uh, of the financial planning and analysis and people understand what that really means and then they kind of start understanding and then fall in love afterwards so I don't think it's yet a concept or um, subject taught in universities so that's why it's still so such a Area that people don't come out of uh, school uh, knowing that you will do. They will learn that later.
0: One other question before we get into the heart of our questions: You've been through. I mean, so you've been in FPNA for more more than ten years. And what changes have you seen from the very beginning? I mean, go back to really when you started first working as an FPNA professional look at where you are today, has a lot changed or or is it maybe similar? Walk me through back then and today.
1: In my mind, I think the biggest change is how leaders perceive the partnership with finance. Before, it was all about seeing ourselves, finance folks, as the people that tells yes or no for budgets to spend And now they kind of understand we're here to help. Uh, We really position ourselves, at least in the company I am now, as a partner to the business. And we really also made a change from being that finance person who understands only balance sheet cash flows and income statements to understand the business itself. So I cannot uh, say today my biggest strength is only finance. I'm totally into the 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 details of the business. So when I talk to someone in the business, I talk at the same level they do. So I think that's the biggest shift uh, of finance uh, or FP&A. It's understanding that the way we need to position ourselves is as we were some kind of a business leader uh, in the sense of being operational leader, not only from a finance perspective only. And we be, bring this bra- background of finance to, to give that visibility how to make better performance in the profitability and so on and so, on, so forth. But at the main talk needs to start from operations perspective, not finance.
0: So one of the reasons we wanted to visit uh, with you is because we are chatting before we got started and hit record. I may get in trouble for this uh, comment, uh, Danielle, you don't have you do not have to agree with me, but some of the books on FP&A are a little bit dry, they're a little bit boring, and so I thought, well, instead of interviewing an author, and we we might probably will, I just wanted to talk to some FP&A directors uh, like like yourself, and you're you're our first here on this podcast. So it's like, what are we going to talk about? So I thought we break this up into three big buckets. Bucket number one is technology. Uh, Bucket number two, systems and processes. And then bucket number three is people. So let's start talking about technology. And I'm smiling as I ask this question. Are we getting past spreadsheet dependency or are we still dependent on Excel or whatever spreadsheet tool uh, most FP&A teams are using? What's your thought on that?
1: um From what I'm seeing and where I am at now it's mostly Excel driven and I will give you there is two sides to it one one may say that is a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, one can argue that in reality Excel is a such great tool that has really changed uh, massively the way we do things ever in uh, any organization that it's going to be hard to implement something else that is, as flexible as Excel, so I'm not totally against Excel specifically when we're talking about SPNA because modeling it's something that needs flexibility, right? And then when you move to a more uh, cloud solution, which we have to, uh, in order to change any model that you got, it takes a lot more long, uh, a lot more time to do it. So there is ups and downs to every solution we use. So I think that uh, automation and systems can help in a lot of ways. But in the modeling front and analytics front, you're going to end up being in Excel anyhow. Because you got to test also your assumptions uh, and theories before you make it a model. So how would you do it in a system prior than testing yourself?
0: Great point. Great point. So
1: we are a very agile company um, and we use agile in To the systems and processes within the FPNA. So we see uh, that being a tool that gives that uh, a that uh, opportunity to test and see whether that model really works. And no one can say that uh, a test can be tested by three months and then it's done. Uh, It takes longer, it takes longer cycles to see if that really gonna fit to the company you are in. And things change so fast that perhaps you got to keep on changing until you find the finest model. So Excel, um, I don't know, sorry for the folks that are all pro-systems, but I am a fan of Excel for sure.
0: Well, if if you're making it work, I kind of believe that there, there are no bad decisions, just consequences. And so far, it sounds like you're not experiencing a lot of negative uh, consequences with using Excel, but... So your perspective is is interesting, and maybe it's giving other people a sigh of relief that, oh, maybe maybe we're not so bad after all. And that brings me to another question when it comes to spreadsheets. Well, when you're using spreadsheets, you got to get the data from somewhere. So let's talk ETL, uh, extract, uh, transform, and load. So... I still read blog entries. You would think that these would be blog entries from 2010, 2012, 2015, 2017. But yet in 2020, and now 2021, I'm still reading, we're spending as much time prepping data as we are analyzing the data. Is that a true statement? And again, that may be unfair to ask you, Danielle, but uh, just from your perspective and maybe hanging out with other uh, colleagues and peers it's somewhat true or are we getting beyond uh data capture
1: it's somewhat true to be fair and going back to what I just said uh, when you're testing models which is basically the work of an fpna person you're testing different sets of data so right. until you get what you really want and you can standardize that is uh, a way way in the future so the way I see it is is well there are Theories that you create and you create a model, and then from there on, you automate, and that will then become something that you're less of manipulating information. Uh, and then there is the ability of the company working on, on providing the technology and the assistance to extract that data easily. But also, there is the fact that we are always testing new things. So, the way I, the, from the place I come from, uh, that is um, that is also the way I see. Of course, uh, that I see as a pain point. I'm not gonna lie; it's not all nice uh, uh, and easy. So every time we need to do something else, it's it's a little painful, specifically because we don't. Uh, I don't think that ever any company has a total infrastructure technology team that can help the finance right. folks extract right on the time we want things. The way we want it, um, and then so on and so forth. So, I am pro to create data warehouse where we can tap into data easily, which is the goal we are uh, aiming in ThoughtWorks today. It's trying to get that database in one place uh, and then making it easy, the access to that data. So, then you can make better decisions on or spending less time on trying to understand where you're getting the data from because I, the complexity comes from when you have multiple system systems in the company saying different information about same kind of data you would like to see. So that is where I see the biggest problem and definitely an area that I feel that it will be a problem everywhere until you define your solution.
0: Automation, uh, artificial intelligence, opinion, are we are we getting there or, there or is there still a long way to go?
1: I think it depends on the industry, to be fair. Uh, there are companies in the industries that are more uh, fast-forwarding that path than others, um, and then others that are less likely to be benefited from automation, even, if you think. So I work in a company where we don't sell products. Uh, so we Service don't have a stream... Right. Yeah. So stream of work is different. The way we plan for revenues are totally down to different uh, KPIs that it's not necessarily easy to automate. So AI can come in in places where the business have a multiple, um, how would I say, um, multiple things to pull together and create a plan. But when Even one line item to be created in the case of revenues for a services, professional services company, it's more down to different uh, uh, theories of getting that revenues than actually just looking to historicals. Historicals Mm -hmm. don't play that big part as you would expect in an industry creating products. So I would say that uh, people need to be really careful when looking into these things because they need to think from. What really works for my company I think there is a uh, push for everyone go down that path, but many people will go down that path of spending money without getting the benefit of it. So you gotta strategize before you go down that path and understand how that can really help you or you will end up with things that you can't really use because, COVID hits and then your models change and then AI cannot support that really. That's a conversation we were having today. So one of the big things for us is like time leave of people and that pattern of time leave in, in the company I am now in the last 10 months has changed massively. We cannot use our historicals anymore. So any, anywhere we use historicals, it throws off our analysis. So in that case, if you have it all automated and you rely uh, blindly into that data, you will be um, you would be uh, you would be uh, deceived to take a decision that is not really uh, the one you would uh, like to be taking. So I I, I look uh, with uh, both um, excitement of having more technology into this field, but also with care to understand like what really works for me.
0: Great, great, great point. I want to move into our next segment, if we can. I want to talk about systems and processes. And I know, at least in FP&A in my world, we don't think of, again, from my perspective, smaller businesses, we don't think of FP&A as a system or process. It's ongoing activities, just ongoing. But let's think of FP&A just for a minute as a system, as a process. Let's start with question number one. Dave Kellogg, who writes the blog, what's Kellblog.com, former uh, CEO of Host Analytics, he has a blog post, and we'll have this in the show notes, it's called Putting the A Back in FP&A. So he thinks we're really good at uh, financials, we're really good at financial planning, but the analysis part still needs work. But I think it's because we're spending so much time on data prep, data prep, data prep. Do you want to address that maybe one last time? Do you think, at least from your perspective, analysis is actually one of our strengths? Is is that true?
1: It should be. Uh, that should be the biggest aim of an FPA and a team. Uh, pulling and uh, planning and forecasting together, forgive me who doesn't uh, agree with me, but I think it's a it's very simple uh, kind of task. And then the benefit and the value add you bring to the business is the A of the FPNA is the analysis on top of what comes through. So for me, who sits in a um, consolidation kind of level of those, uh, uh, those processes of planning, forecasting, or even uh, actual results, to me, it's all about analysis. So it's how we take that information, turn it to insights, guide people, uh, to the next step, understanding what are the things we can change right now, what are the things we need to look in the next couple of months and long run, what does that mean to the strategy of the company? So, analysis is the biggest, uh, I think, uh, part of the FPA, Which I agree, many people will be focused on gathering data, and I understand that is um, something that we need to be looking at. But I would say, which we will, I get. Uh, I think, again, later in this um, interview on the people side, but I think it also comes down, Mark, to people not being, uh, FPNA people not being prepared uh, to do that kind of analysis. So there is a sort of, um, it's, it's, it's a little tricky because you talk about human beings. Human beings will always go down to the task they, they feel more comfortable with. So they will end up spending more time where they feel that that's where they have the capabilities. And if you don't get people pushed towards that direction, they won't do themselves. So it's a kind of thing that the leaders and uh, leaders of fp and leaders of the business is to start pushing and encouraging the SPNA to be more of and then be open to listen to because we have to also open that path for people to hear what we are saying. And then I would even dare to say we need to get used to the frustration of not being heard because I think resilience in this part is very important because you're going to have to be knocking every person's door of your business every day, giving that message until it comes through. So it is a h- very hard part of fp the A of it, and it's very easy to give up, uh, you know what I mean? Just like kind of a it, human beings will go for the easy, right? And then that is a, an area that we end up giving up because there are so many doors closed yet. We have to explore more of it.
0: The one way I approach the A in analysis, at least in my world, and it's not a retort to, to Dave, again, he's a brilliant thinker, but... My approach to analysis is what are the questions that our leadership teams are asking? I want to know those questions before they have even verbally asked them. So if I take that to its full logical conclusion, I want to have the answers before the questions are ever asked, which means I know my business pretty well and that again that's one my approach or a mindset toward analysis is have the answer before the question has been asked that's not easy but again that's just one 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 idea one more thing about budgeting we mentioned budgeting briefly a few minutes ago but i'm putting budgeting under the under the spear or the under the umbrella of systems and processes in your opinion and again i don't want to be probing in your organization but do you think we're getting better at budgeting? Is, I mean, there are some companies, there's no budgeting. Uh, there's some companies that they still budget. There are the companies in between, at least from your perspective. Do you feel like you guys are doing budgeting, if you do budgeting, better today than maybe, say, five, seven, ten years ago? <laughs>
1: Um, It's a very interesting question, uh, specifically because I've experienced so many different setups uh, in the last 10 years. So we were, five years ago, we always had planning or budget, as you call. um, And it was an interesting process of getting people aligned to what we need to do for next year. So we don't see... Budget to be a necessarily a burdensome process because it really helps us to get to the um, the operational side of it and understanding what we really need to get done in order to make the next year successful. Um, as you would expect, it's still a long process because it, it, there are so many people involved. In the place I work for, is also very collaborative. So it's, very, it's highly collaborative. You probably never seen as collaborative as you would see where I am at. So it takes long time when you trying to involve everyone in the process. So we have a bottoms-up process to the planning, which really involves from people in the countries getting their opinions and then rolling up until uh, the consolidation. So that will take time anyhow. But um, about, uh, I think, four years ago, we decided to go um, – um, beyond budgeting, if you want to call it. And then we, we scrapped uh, away the budget and we've implemented forecasting. We took forecasting for a, a monthly forecast to give us an idea of our business because as I mentioned earlier, professional services can be hard to predict. So you, even if you try your best, uh, doing it in 12 months uh, line of sight is pretty hard. So we shrunk that period to be more of a six-month lineup site because we saw this is really what we can do, and then that's where we see our uh, revenues and how we, uh, we set up our company to be successful for the time being. Then uh, we did that for about a year and a half or two, and then not sure if it's good or not but we had to roll it back to plans because we were required to so I understand better plan today because after that period that we were away from plan it isn't I'm not saying that it was a bad period it worked just fine but we were then um, bought by a private equity which wanted to know what are the commitments we would make so we had to bring planning back and then today I see it slightly different so as My perspective is I lived in a world where the company was a private company and then we could do whatever we wanted from a plan perspective. So we did it for a while. We took it away for for a while. We implemented forecasting. So we, we did like six months forecasting, then we rolled to three months. So we done a lot of setups to see what worked best for us. And I think we landed on the standard process of having the annual plan to set up like Level, um, a certain level of targets we want to achieve for next year. We continue doing forecasts on a quarterly basis. So that informs us how we're doing, what we can do best, uh, how we can improve upon the numbers we were setting ourselves, making sure we have the resources in the business. As I mentioned earlier, we are an agile company. So a plan, a year plan, does not fit. To ourselves, Because things change very rapidly. So we have to adapt and forecast helps us to bridge what we, we were planning uh, back in the year before to what is happening now. So I think there is a, uh, to answer your question, I think that you got to, again, see what works for your company and you got to try. And then you should not be afraid of making mistakes and rolling back and forth the the processes. You should change it the way it fits best for the purpose you've got. I think that uh, for our perspective, we got a lot better. We understood that um, we needed that uh, support on an ongoing basis to understand our business. The business leaders feel more comfortable that way too. So they, they like on having that forecasting process that goes down to the details. So they, they have the new targets and then can keep on moving on a, a very uh, fast pace move, uh, moving. And that actually uh, reflected during the COVID crisis, because during the COVID crisis, we didn't need to change much because we were already so flexible as a company that changing the forecast from a monthly one to a weekly one, people just took it on board because we knew what to do and then we just got straight into it as well as we got straight out as we felt like it was already good enough for us and so we take that approach of flexibility and and I think that is may not resonate to a lot of companies out there given the structure I see a lot of companies being fixed uh, on how to go about it I guess i being privileged to work in a company that takes things on a such agile way and change and be flexible and be collaborative. And we just update things as we go. So every quarter we do a forecast or every plan, we we run retrospectives to the last cycle. We understand what the business didn't like about it. We implement new change. So we are ever changing our processes to make it better for the business and achieving our targets. So... I think we as a company are doing better for sure uh, globally, I think that's still a lot of ground to be covered. and then bringing that flexibility business it's I think the key uh, measure for um, being successful in this future that's so um, fluid.
0: I love your answer, and I'm gonna interpret something you said for younger uh, FPA professionals. What I'm hearing you say, reading between the lines is, People be adaptive. You're going to be in all kinds of environments, which you've been through several, and be adaptive and and don't necessarily fight it. Just just work with it, and whatever system is working in that organization, keep working with it. And that's one of the things I, I heard you heard you say. Hey, I want to talk about people, and and again, this is one of my one of my favorite questions. And I know, well, I don't know, the people who come to work for you guys, I, I don't know if they're experienced or, or if they're right out of school. This may be just, you have to take a, you may have to just guess on this. But what's that one thing or two things that young fp a professionals may be lacking as they get started
1: that's a very interesting question. And I see it in so many ways. But um I think what I see, many people are focusing only on the technical side of skills, which are definitely needed for the job, right? You wouldn't argue against it, but it's not only right. that. So if you wanna get into FPNA, there are key words that I would put out there for people that you need to be Thinking, living, and breathing, that kind of thing, which is being open, being flexible, being resilient, uh, and then always uh, feel like you want to learn more. And even more than that, not only learn, it's learn to share that knowledge to others. Because our key role is not only providing those analyses and uh, consolidating plans and forecasts, is to help the company understand where we're going. And a lot of the job I do is education, educating the leaders to understand our numbers and understand where the, the, their decision are going to take them. So there is a lot of learning and experience that you share across. So being a partner, a business partner, that's what it really means, right? So that is, I think, the the, the key things that I, I look for on an FPA person, for sure. But um In addition to that, I would put also the the collaborative and the autonomy uh, because we, well, I guess the whole world was thrown to the remote working uh, right in a a second after COVID hit and we had to all stay at home. I've been living and breathing this remote working for now over three, four years. And uh, one of the things people struggle is, Understanding that once you are part of an fp team, I expect of you to be as leader as I am. So, in order to be to be successful, you can't expect me, the leader, to be telling you all the time what you got to do. You got to make up your own decisions. You got to know your stuff. You got to go after the things and really make for yourself uh, the, the the decisions and the prioritization and then all of this stuff needs to happen within you. So FPNAs, in my opinion, they are like little leaders uh, of uh, by themselves, and then those kind of skills needs to be built into people. So when I'm recruiting, that's where I put my focus on. Can that person be? Is that person courageous enough to take on that journey of failing? Because you do fail. You're going to fail. That's just one matter of fact. You're going to fail in that world where you search in front of the the business and making recommendations. There will be places that you're not going to know what you're doing. And you're going to just stop everything and say like, hey, sorry, I don't know. I'm going to stop here and I will come back to you. So you need to be courageous to be vulnerable at that point to say to the leader that you're talking to, I don't know the answer right now. I'm going to figure it out and come back to you. So that kind of uh, skill of per- a person being, um, I-, I guess, knowing themselves enough to feel comfortable on being uncomfortable—that uh, is what really drives a good FPNA. So we need to move, and that is one of our goals right now: is moving from a business partnership kind of mindset to even being a challenger. So the the, pe- the place, the the other place, uh, place that I would add on to the capabilities and abilities that I see very. Much needed in FPNAs, being that kind of person that do the right questions, as you brought up earlier, and be comfortable that you're gonna ask difficult questions and you're gonna get difficult answers, and then that's okay, right? It's as long as it comes from your heart, even because I like thinking that we do it this, all the work we do with love, uh, everyone will find a way to to meet in the the middle. And I think there is a little, um, this um, concept that finance folks are harsh uh, and that really spoils the relationships. If you don't put into the leader's shoes, you're not going to get much out of it. You're not adding value to the company. So, Instead of thinking of yourself as being someone telling what others need to do, it's like, how do I enable others to be successful? So all of that needs to be built into the soft skills of that person to be a successful fp which is different from the technical side of it. Of course, you do need to have good Excel skills. You've got to uh, understand your data. you got to have a background in economics, accounting, or some sort of... A, um, 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 of that area. But uh, in reality, I think that uh, perhaps 60 to 65% of a good fp comes from the soft side of skills.
0: You touched on this, but Patrick Lencioni, he's sold millions of books. Uh, one of my favorite books of his is The Ideal Team Player. I love that book. And The Ideal Team Player is someone who's hungry, humble, and smart. So hold on to that. Going back to Dave Kellogg, of dot He wrote an art, our article about humility. We'll have this in the show notes. He, he says that humble people have what's called a beginner's mind. And he says that beginner's mind is an attitude of openness, eagerness, and a lack of preconceptions. And you're smiling. Uh, would you agree that that ideal... FP&A pro is someone who's going to be a lifelong learner and almost has a childlike attitude toward I want to keep learning more about this it, would you is is that a fair statement that we need those good soft skills but don't forget continually be learning would you agree with that
1: 100 percent I think that's right on um, and I'm not only learning to the job but um one thing that I've been exploring in my own personal, Development is in order to be creative. Uh, you gotta be learning other things outside your job, so you gotta have other things to do outside the work. And I used to spend a lot of time working and then reading books, like technical books. Uh, at the end of the day, but then I realized that was not doing the best benefit because creativity comes from merging different subjects. So that is where I feel like having all that openness to learning, it it needs to expand beyond finance, right? So I, I, I in reality, got um, um, a master's in marketing because I felt that I I was kind of getting tired of finance subjects and then it's kind of repetitive. So I felt like I need to go to another space uh, and then understand a little bit more of what I'm what are the other views you can have on the company? And right now I'm studying psychology too, because that is where, if you want to become a good leader, that's where you need to be putting yourself into. So it's different areas, blind them, to like put them all together, be creative and be open to learn.
0: Uh, looking back at your career, it could be in the recent past or a number of years ago, who are some of the influencers who have had a big impact on your career, Danielle?
1: You know, I thought about that question prior to this uh, call, and I was thinking, I don't have major people that I followed throughout my career. I'm always being curious, that's for sure. And I could name like 10,000 places that I go for information. So I always believed uh, myself um, trying to bridge knowledge from different areas of interest. Of course, i done school, university courses, and that gave me enough space for continued growth. But I I, I don't have a person. That is, uh, At some point back a few years when someone asked and I didn't have that person in mind, I felt a little bad because everyone has a name. But I don't know. It just feels like everyone is sort of... Um, a person that I also look out to. So it's not one, but everyone uh, in combination. So there is one thing that I learned that I smarter than one person is the room that person is in, so with everyone in it. So it's kind of I pick and choose from every person that I come across a little bit in here and there, and I go and learn, and then I kind of blend and then create my own view on things, which make me unique, which I think that is also not a bad thing.
0: I've always been curious, what would it be like to hang out for one day at Amazon's FP&A group? And they may call it something different. Uh, and they may be like you guys, spread out. I've also wondered what it would be like to uh, be in an FP, FP&A group at, say, like Tableau or or some other large organization. So I'm curious, is there one organization, one company, or it could be a nonprofit that you would love to hang out with in their FP&A group?
1: So again, I guess um, I would rather say that I would love to be in a group of people instead of one company. Uh, right. So unfortunately, by being based in Brazil, I get less chance of doing that. Most sure. of the big events happen happens in the U.S. or in the U.K., and I kind of keep uh, myself out of the loop. But I would love to go into one of those conferences that you kind of uh, get to know a lot of people from different and getting different perspectives but I did meet in the last few uh, months uh, a little more of other FPA folks from other companies. And I come to realize that uh, we are all kind of in the same place. Um, so that is being nice uh, to understand. We are all searching for the right answers. We are all testing things. And then no, no company that I crossed so far has the perfect team. So you should be feeling comfortable with what you've got and always aiming for the best. Right. You can only do better than you did yesterday. Never only compare yourself to another place that you never really stepped into. So you don't know how the, the things happens in the background. So um, it is kind of uh, the way I see. It. I don't have a name of a company. I think that works in reality, is a great company that very little uh, people know about. And um, I've been um, in this World for 10 years. And back, uh, I think three years ago, I was in London on a FP&H& round roundtable. And I was hearing these folks, which I had that one opportunity to meet. And I realized how much uh, we've um, accelerated some of the things that people are looking for right now. Uh, which is the collaboration that I mentioned early, like flexibility, agility, all those things are very top to our minds. And I didn't realize until I met all those folks. So it's a blend of having the two together. So that is uh, I, I, the way I feel about it.
0: Last question, Danielle. This is CFO Bookshelf, so we do like books. Uh, what are some of your favorite books? Can I, can I pry and ask? And it doesn't have to be business books either. But are there any titles that just really stand out? And again, business or non-business?
1: I picked four on the business front, which I really feel people should read. Um, But also I would say there is more there out there that you should be aiming for but what i would say is the how to win friends and influence people from dale uh carnita i don't know how to pronounce his name that was one of the best books i read uh, that really helped on the leadership mm-hmm. uh journey and then along with that uh, what got you here won't get you there it's another marvelous book from marshall goldsmiths
0: yes that Great took book. me to
1: the next level when I realized that uh, uh, it's never good enough where you are, but you also can do better. That is uh, also a very good book. The one, the one, the two new, I would say. Uh, upcoming people that are writing books, which I feel the new generation should be reading, is from Brené Brown, uh, The Dare to Lead. I think it brings a lot of what we talked about on being courageous and, and bringing vulner- vulnerability into Uh, the reality of our business we need to become more humans uh, and then specifically in this remote work uh, world where you gotta understand uh, the people you're working with from a distance and then kind of putting yourself into a place that you don't know it all kind of person moving away I'm pretty sure that really helps performance and last but not least the find your why from Simon Sinek. Because that um, I applied also to the team the other the, the beginning of um, this year. So we need to find our why when we going through t- massive amount of uh, work. Why are we doing this? Why do I wake up every morning to do this? I need to feel happy, and what really um, make me feel happy. So people need to realize that. Otherwise, a work uh, which takes up to eight ten hours a day sometimes it's really Bothersome. It's 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 heavy. It's it's not. You got to be happy, right? It's the aim. At the end of the day, is making my team to feel happy about the work they are doing. If they're not happy, we are not achieving our goal.
0: I can't say thank you enough. We are connected in LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, however you want to say it, Uh, I I'm going to predict we're going to hear and see your name more often. I think first of all. If I may be so bold, Danielle, I think I would love to see you writing in this space. I would love to see you be speaking uh, in this space if you're not already. So I think you've got some great leadership abilities and capabilities, and I think you can be one of those influencers. You probably already are, but even maybe on a little bit uh, bigger scale as as time uh, permits. That now I'm just that's my opinion. So put you can push back if you want to, but. Uh, we're gonna be hearing your name, I, I think more often. Just my opinion.
1: Well, I would love to go down that path, mark. And then, as you all said, time is it's um, it's where I end up having trouble with <laughs> being able to really serve the company, the the people that I work with, my own family, my own personal needs, and then still getting time to influence others. Uh, it's definitely a challenge which I take to the heart. And I think that is where I really would like to be. Um, I think that as I mentioned before, Brazilians don't get enough information yet. I've been given this um, ability of speaking English and being able to translate back information. So I'm open also to, to get that information to the people like of my country, not only, but uh, globally too. And I think that you're right, I should be writing more uh, and then who knows. Perhaps the next few months uh, will uh, hold some surprises.
0: You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandhi. Again, Daniel Martins, head of Global FP&A at ThoughtWorks. I'm betting if you have a question for her, you can connect to her on LinkedIn. And again, I'll have her LinkedIn profile link on the show notes page. Uh, you couldn't see this, but as Danielle was answering questions, she, she was doing so each time with a smile and she was speaking with confidence. So what a great leader she is. We need to call this a wrap. I want you to keep learning, keep growing, and keep making a difference. Next week, we have Stacy Barr, who is based in Australia, and I'm calling her the Global Performance Measurement Specialist. And she's the author of two books. That's next week on CFO Bookshelf.